0: This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed, bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant <coughs> to a motherfucker like me, can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. <coughs> you know, Make some noise! Well, I'm here. I'm cute as shit. Oh, whoa, oh, oh, whoa, oh, skip, skip, skip! If you don't chew Big Red, then... F- you. That's so horny. you naked in the shower with your clothes on. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Three cash, homie. three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W-Boss, W-Boss, W-Boss. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Can you dig it? Hello, everyone. I am your host, Sam LaCrosse, and we are back for another episode of the Do Not Listen to This podcast presented by me. Uh, we do not have any sponsors yet, so I um, I, I don't want to make the same mistake again like I did with the first episode and say that all these people are sponsoring me and you know not infringing on their copyrights. I don't even know what I was trying to say there, but yeah, I kind of... um. I made the mistake of kind of shouting out all the people that I pirated their songs and their sound bites from, so if any of them, uh, do not direct them to the first episode of this podcast, podcast number zero, because that is where I commit this sin. But anyways, so this week, um, it's kind of been, you know, this the topic of this podcast and this article on uh, the corresponding article on DontReadThisBlog.com is kind of just a manifestation of some thoughts I've had in the past couple weeks, I would say, on the topic that I think a lot of people get wrong, and I that I have especially myself have gotten wrong, and I kind of came while I was writing it and thinking about it to a really kind of meh conclusion about it, but I think it's something that, well, I shouldn't say meh because it was definitely enlightening to kind of um, see how it really worked out, I guess, but... You know, just to kind of see it manifest in something that's kind of sobering and not really that exciting. Because I think a big theme of a lot of the stuff that I write is that a lot of the things that you do in life are not as exciting as people make it out to be. And I think that's a big problem with particularly young people in our culture that kind of just, you know, they make things much more than what they seem to be. And I think that's a problem to both our mental health and to our expectations of other people and of ourselves. Because if we have too big of a pressure on what our lives are supposed to be like, we're going to be constantly disappointed and, you know, all this other stuff about just kind of how our lives are turning out to be or not turning out to be. And I think that's a very, very large problem to a big degree because if we're constantly disappointed, then disappointment leads to other things, which leads to other things, which leads to other things that are obviously not good and they fall downhill very quickly. So this week I want to kind of talk about something that I particularly in i would say the business world and kind of just like the i think it's just a cultural thing honestly with us like the kind of the the business side like the the young people side the, the aspirational side that appeals to many of us i think that is what i wanted to accomplish with this post and so let's just get right into it so i fucking hate the word great. I never used to, but I kind of have learned to hate it, I would say, from, you know, just the, well, I wrote a post about it. I wrote a whole post about words that were overused in our society, and I think great is is one of them, to be sure. And so I fucking hate the word great. I've learned to hate it. And I wonder if Dr. Seuss would hate that as much as he loved the rhyme in the last sentence. So cue the woke mobster's head exploding. I just had to put something about uh, Dr. Seuss in there because this whole fiasco is very, very hilarious, in my opinion. Well, You know, I shouldn't say that I hate the word great. I just think that people overblow with excess, thus diluting the value of the word itself because they're too lazy to think their thoughts through. Be precise in your speech. That's rule number 10, by the way. But greatness is and always has been a very interesting and peculiar topic. It's so wide-ranging it's nearly impossibly difficult to comprehend. I think we all have an abstract view of what it is, a thing that we could point to and make examples of, but not necessarily put into words. In fact, let's expand on that point for a little bit. Most people, at least at the individual level, draw their examples of greatness from a wide-ranging variety of sources. Some cite great athletes, some cite businessmen or entrepreneurs, some others cite change agents and social activists, others cite religious leaders. Greatness, like we said, can manifest itself into nearly every field that we could possibly imagine, in the sense that most people think about what greatness really is. However, I would think that what most people's sense of what constitutes greatness is, is wrong. It's not necessarily that people that they're citing are not great. I personally believe that point to be irrelevant. Greatness is arbitrary in most sense. Look for the the examples of people defacing Abraham Lincoln statues over the summer for the best example that I can cite in recent memory. I do believe that there are people that should be universally recognized as great, Lincoln most certainly being one of them. But a lot of people look up to a lot of other people for a lot of different reasons. This is healthy, and this is okay. But I still believe that there is a disconnect here. A lot of people can tell what greatness is from an after-effect, from a results standpoint. But not a lot of people know what really goes into greatness. The process of becoming great at something is what makes that person great. Anyone can make one great song, land one big sale, go, or go viral on TikTok with one video. It is another thing to make dozens of great songs, be a constant producer in your company year over year, and stay relevant on a social media site for more than six months. A lot of people have asked me what greatness is to me, what it personally means to me. I've been asked it in casual conversation, in-depth discussions, interviews, and in presentations before. Before I knew what greatness truly was, I would give stereotypical examples. LeBron James, Martin Luther King, that whole type of jazz. Everyone, including me, knew they were great. But no one, including me, knew why. But now I only give one example whenever someone asks me, and I've only given one for the past several years. It's the best example of what greatness constitutes that I've ever seen, and probably will ever, see. In late 2012, journalist Jonah Weiner ran an expose in the New York Times and stand up comedian Jerry Seinfeld. While most know Seinfeld for the show bearing his name that reigns as potentially the greatest sitcom to ever exist, I had almost no idea about the man behind the legend. The $900 million net worth and millions in royalties that constantly add to it, the ridiculous car collection, the airy and flamboyant voice, the awe that he inspired from all those who tried to do stand up. All I knew was the legend, the end result the greatness. I had no idea about anything else. Jerry Seinfeld has been doing comedy since he was in his early 20s. His career now spans over 45 years. 45 years doing the same thing. Performing and writing jokes, attempting to get people to laugh. This is, this is in and of itself an absolutely amazing thing. Stand-up comedy is an absolutely brutal field. It's one of the hardest career paths you can choose. It's so raw, so vulnerable. It gobbles most up and shits them out without a second thought. Yet Seinfeld has been doing it longer than he has been doing anything, including living, for the most part. But then the section came to the process. But then the section came to the process, and one thing that Seinfeld was hoping to get right, Seinfeld was set to perform at Manhattan's Beacon Theater soon, and he wanted a more low-key venue to tune up some of his material before he stepped on stage. He whipped out his phone, called up a local comedy club, asked for a time to- for a set. tweeted out the location, and hopped in his Porsche to leave. I would love it if there were only two people there tonight, he said as he left. Before he left for the set, Weiner began to see into the depths of Seinfeld's creative process. Seinfeld, like most great creators, tries to capture inspiration whenever it strikes. Seinfeld's apartment is riddled with notebooks with chicken-scratch concepts, joke ideas, and set inspirations. He can pick one up and set one down like it was nothing. He's constantly working, tuning and tweaking something so they can eventually come out with just right. In one of those notebooks, Jerry Seinfeld revealed his process of writing a joke about a Pop-Tart. One singular joke about something as bland and as commonplace as a Pop-Tart. The entire clip of the bit lasts immediately one minute and 35 seconds, and that includes the audience applause and effective pausing. That one joke and corresponding one minute and 35 seconds took Jerry Seinfeld over two years to write. There are a lot of amazing things that I've heard of and seen, but I'd never been more blown away in my entire life than when I heard that statement. Two years for a joke about something as pointless and stupid as a fucking Pop-Tart? I was absolutely dumbfounded. It wasn't even in the vein of someone like Dave Chappelle, who would use it to make a greater point about society, or even Bill Burr, who would make it into an angry rant, or even more so Louis C.K., who would somehow make a sexual reference out of it. No, two years, one minute and 35 seconds, One joke of Jerry Seinfeld simply talking about the existence of a processed toaster pastry. After sitting in my disbelief, I began to expand on it. Who in the fuck would do that? Why in the hell would someone waste two years of their life, of their precious brain power, writing a joke about something that had no significance to it whatsoever? Even if Jerry Seinfeld was doing 15 minutes of stand-up, that's only one-ninth of the act. It absolutely made no sense to me but it made all the sense in the world to Jerry Seinfeld. Quote, It's a long time to spend on something that means absolutely nothing, but that's what I do. End quote. That's what I do, he said. Write jokes about factory-produced breakfast foods that are consumed by the million every single day. Spend every waking hour scribbling insanity over jokes that may or may not be more meaningless, more stupid, or more underwhelming. I had never been more inspired in my entire life. A couple weeks ago, entrepreneur and Shark Tank guest, or Shark Tank star, rather, Damon John posted a checklist on his LinkedIn account. Getting eight hours of sleep and quote-unquote taking breaks for mental health were on the list. Several other LinkedIn social media influencers do the same thing constantly. I hate to break it to Damon because I like him, because all great people, including him, would laugh at the statement if they weren't A, lying, or B, trying to keep their brand relevant on social media by getting clicks. Jerry Seinfeld's Pop-Tart story proves this. The true cost of greatness is that you must be all in or you will not be great. It does not happen by accident. The two cultures of our society, hustle culture and self-love culture, conflict with one another because of this exact point. You can't buy into both and still expect things to happen for you. Almost no one would spend two years toiling over a single joke about a Pop-Tart, like Jerry Seinfeld did, Almost no one would work 40 hours a week at a Red Lobster and then spend another 40-plus sewing labels onto hats, like Damon John did. Greatness is scarcity, and Jerry Seinfeld and Damon John are two very scarce individuals. Any outrageously successful person who tells you that you have to, quote, prioritize mental health and, quote, have a work-life balance and, quote, get eight hours of sleep and says that you can be successful as them is absolutely full of shit. It's a hypocrisy and a lie, and we're hearing more of it. Let me ask you some questions about some people who a lot would consider great. How many quote-unquote mental health days do you think Bill Gates took? How much do you think Mother Teresa or Whitney Wolfe meditated? How many eight-hour days do you think Jay-Z worked and still works? We all know the answers. We just don't like to say them out loud. The most honest example that I can reference of this comes from another Shark Tank star, Kevin O'Leary. In addition to his business and television appearances, O'Leary also teaches in business schools and delivers speeches to students. In one unforgettable instance, a student asked him a question about this very topic. He had started a multi-million dollar business in his dorm room that required him to work seven days a week, but his fiancé wanted him to spend weekends with her and the family, and was threatening to leave him if he couldn't. O'Leary's response? Let's be pragmatic. Which is easier to replace, your business or your fiancé? End quote. Again, we all know what the answer is, we just don't like to say these things out loud. Very few people are honest about these types of measures because we don't want to hurt someone's feelings or make them question what their motives for living their lives are. We don't want to alienate ourselves from the rest of the pack because conformity with average is a much more enticing option than separating ourselves of the uncommon. But is it that simple? The answer is that it's not. We should not be harsh and judgmental of others because they have different goals or levels of capacity for achievement and some others. That would be a cruel and unjust way of going about existing as a human being. But since this is a question that consumes our culture so often, particularly those among us who are young, ambitious, and tuned into society, I believe that it's a question that must be constantly examined within our own minds. To tackle the dichotomy of greatness, we must first examine what the true cost of greatness is, what most people confuse it with and result in, in most of them never getting there, and in the end, why it is perfectly not okay, to, er, okay not to get there. So sit back, crack open a pack of brown sugar cinnamons, and bask in our, let's bask in our collective mediocrity. In my day job, no, I don't blog and do podcasting for a living, even though I very much wish that was the case. My goal is to sell 30-minute blocks of time. I do this by commuting, communicating with companies, nearly all of which you would rec- mostly recognize, particularly if you lived in either the Midwest or Southeastern United States. I do this in a combination of outreach by email, phone, and social media, and blitzing them as much as I can for as long of an endurance as either I can stand or that my potential customers can tolerate. Entry-level sales is the hardest career jump-off point you can enter in the world of business. You're constantly immersed in your own vulnerability, without a hope of escape. Should you fail to enter that zone of vulnerability, you won't hit your quota, and you'll be quickly replaced by someone who can at least get themselves to go there. It's a result-driven field, with all the harshness and raw feelings that come with it. But, like everything else, things begin to stratify after a while. The people who are either bad at the job or don't want to be there, more than likely being a combination of the two, are quickly either weeded out of the company or sent so far to the depths that there is almost no hope for their re-emergence. The vast majority of people are somewhere in the middle, around 80% or so. These are the people that usually get around to, hit just at, or slightly exceed their quota, usually metrics on a quarterly or yearly basis, depending on the company. And then those, there are those at the top. The ones that are somehow able to transcend nearly everyone in their hardest possible field you can go into and become something more. These are the people that can become something of legend. The people that others look to to set the pace for their career and their livelihood. These are the people that others look up to. These are the people that are among the ranks of Gary Vaynerchuk and Jordan Belfort. But first back to me. My job is dirty work. I'm the lowly coal shoveler in the engine room that feeds the fire that powers the organization. I do the grunt work. I get rejected all the time, hung up on, sweared at, you named it. This makes no logical sense. No sensible person would ever do this to themselves, to put themselves in the realm of harm that they could put themselves at risk. But the problem of something bigger keeps me going, or the promise, rather, of something bigger keeps me going. It helps that, in my job, I serve, the man who, or serve a man who is among the elevated, one who has done what I have done, been forged in the fire, and now is reaping the benefits in ways that I could not possibly imagine. In a nutshell, the reason that I sell 30-minute blocks of time is so I can get potential clients on the phone in order for my higher representatives to sell them technology. My hope from my end is that the customer is interested enough in what he spends that 30 minutes talking about in order to warrant a more serious conversation about something we could sell him in order for him to buy it. That's how I get paid. But my representatives are paid differently. They are paid on what the customer actually buys. When a customer buys something, my rep makes commission from it. That is, a portion of the revenue from the sale hits his direct deposit as soon as the transaction is approved by the finance department. This is a terribly hard job as well. The products we sell aren't cheap by any stretch of the imagination. And it's a tremendous investment by these companies to even fathom making them pull the trigger on something like our products. Which is exactly why my rep I'm referencing is so brilliant. He's not only successful, he's transformative. He's not only helped the companies run their businesses, he's built their businesses. Through the meticulous mining of his territory, he has scaled and transformed companies by selling them millions and millions of dollars of our technology so that their business can have the potential to explode. Trust me, I know. I check their stocks constantly. These are not small companies. Among my rep's biggest clients are one of the world's largest insurance providers, one of the top-rated healthcare conglomerates in the world, a top 20 bank in the United States, and two high-profile clothing retailers that I would bet every single one of us has bought clothes from at least once. And that's just five of his customers. All of this massive investment in his career has made my rep a lot of money, and I mean a lot of money, like top five sales rep in the country a lot of money. If you want a field in which you want to see if you can hit the bank big, look no further than tech sales. With the current cloud computing wars going on and the massive innovation that's happening in the space from all angles, it's a market that's in constant flux and disruption. That flux and disruption leads to problems, which leads to opportunity. If a business is not technically inclined in today's environment, particularly of the size that I work with, it's the equivalent of a death sentence. My rep, like all truly opportunistic people, has taken full advantage of this. He's bankrolled his entire lifestyle for the rest of his life. I'd be willing to bet that given his current age and current earning potential. He's in his 50s. He could stop working today and be fine until he keels over. That's how much power and money this guy has amassed. he doesn't live cheap, either. This is, by these accounts, a great thing to understand about how this man lives his life. He makes a lot of money, has enough prestige and status to use to bargain in his social life, and otherwise has everything everyone could ever hope for wanting. Until people see the other side. Last week, I rolled up in my bedroom closet where I work, hashtag work from home, and opened up my computer to get everything started around 4.30 a.m. before I hit the gym. When I opened my Slack, the workplace instant messaging application that is now owned by our friend, not friend, Mark Beaney off at Salesforce, I found three messages. They were sent at 11.30pm the previous Sunday night, all related to quote-unquote urgent matters at work. I found this to be incredibly bizarre. The first phrase that popped into my head was quite literally, dude, why the fuck aren't you in bed with your wife? Most people would be. We are paid, in most cases, to work 40 hours a week, even in sales. We get paid well for those 40 hours, particularly when you're at the level this man resides. There's no way on earth that slacking your 30 years younger than you inside sales team should be a top of mind. But it was. And it wasn't the first time that something like this had happened. It happens quite regularly. Slacks at 9.30pm, 8pm, 10.45pm are all commonplace. During the workday. everything has to be be meticulous and near perfection. Not one hair can be out of place. The people on my rep's team feel this, and I certainly feel this. No one wants to cross him because they know what kind of cloud it carries. Even if it's a perfectly reasonable request, no one will care. Meritocracy always wins at the end of the day, unless the game is somehow broken. On his second appearance in the Joe Rogan Experience, author, fitness athlete, and the toughest man in America, David Goggins, expressed this mindset in the most Goggins way imaginable. For those who don't know, David Goggins has earned that title by beating himself up with some of the most brutal suffering imaginable to transform himself into the hardest man on the planet. It's truly one of the most incredible stories I've ever heard in my life. He is someone that every young American, particularly young men, should look to for guidance. But a lot of people don't buy it. A lot of people are turned off by him and his unrelenting attitude. I was originally until I decided to educate myself more. The reason why Goggins turns a lot of people off is because he's so consistent so forceful, so passionate, that not a lot of people can identify with him. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. He throws any excuse that comes his way promptly into a wood shepherd and then roasts you for it. He doesn't smile. When asked why he doesn't smile, Goggins told Rogan, there's no fucking end, my friend. There's no end. There's no end, end quote. And that's the cold hard truth. That is the cost of greatness. The cost of greatness is that it never ends. If you want to be truly great at something, you have to be so unbelievably consistent that it will cost you nearly everything. Being comfortable in your bed with your wife, having a work-life balance, getting a grip on your mental health, taking breaks. Anyone who says otherwise is either ignorant to these facts or of the situation or is a liar. With greatness, rent is due every day, in the words of Dwayne The Rock Johnson. In the words of Mark Cuban, you have to work like someone is trying to take it all away from you because someone is. I like Brene Brown, but the universe is not abundant, at least not of greatness. Greatness is finite. Greatness is scarce, primarily because not many people are willing to pay the price in order to access it. Jerry Seinfeld is a phenomenally great comic because he spends years crafting joke about processed breakfast foods, but Jerry Seinfeld also has a lot of issues in a lot of other areas. Unfortunately, when you overcompensate in one area, you end up much, very much undercompensating another, and probably multiple. My rep is great in technology sales, but in my opinion he fails miserably in other areas of his life. The dichotomy of greatness is that, in most cases, the thing you're great at sucks the soul out of everything else in your life. It begins to become benign, and almost secondary, to what you want to make out of your life and how you want to conduct yourself in the world. Jeff Bezos has created the greatest company in the history of the modern world, in Amazon. That's a phenomenal feat. But his wife just took $54 billion of his fortune and married a local school teacher. That's not a phenomenal feat at all. Jeff Bezos has Amazon, and a lot of money, but not much else. And he's okay with that, I think. It's his choice, and he has a right to it. Goggins has had many struggles in his personal life, but he's okay with that because of his greatness and his other endeavors. He has to live with that choice every day. You cannot have, quote-unquote, it all, whatever that means to you. This is a facade and a lie you'd be wise not to buy into it. Unfortunately, many people do, which needs to be addressed next. Hustle culture will tell you lies about how you need to quote-unquote outwork everybody and quote-unquote rise and grind to get where you want to be. This is both true and not true. It is a generally accepted assumption, but not one that we should be t- taking with literal conviction. Let me explain. In my original post on excess, which remains to be one of my favorites, I referenced the episode of the Joe Rogan experience where the, then, on then-presidential candidate Andrew Yang. Yang, in all of his smarts, reframed the concept of our economic state of the world as a series of bad metrics. His, contest, his concept was simple. You cannot properly play a game without knowing the rules of the game itself. Additionally, if the rules of the game are inherently flawed, there is no point in playing the game at all. Most of the people that jerk off to hustle porn, or that, put less frankly, want to pursue greatness, usually fall into one of not both, which I believe is a majority, of these buckets. In order to see why these things happen, we must examine both these two individual problems and their convergence in order to see their effects. Let's start with the first one. Not properly playing a game without knowing the rules of the game itself. Let's think about this concept first in the terms of game that we've all seen. Various professional sports. LeBron James is a great basketball player, but he wouldn't have any success trying to play basketball by shooting the ball from out of bounds, thinking that it counted, or by passing the ball to the other team and allowing them to score. That would result in LeBron being a bad player and being unwanted in the social hierarchy of basketball players. Let's go one step further. Let's say LeBron does know the rules, but he chooses to break them anyways. He decides to go full second half monsters on anyone that comes in his vicinity. He trips the man who's guarding, who he's guarding. He pops the guy who's guarding him in the face of the ball, sweeps the leg Johnny Lawrence style, and elbows the center on purpose on his way to the basket. This scenario would result in what is a worse situation than above. Not only is LeBron unwanted, but he would be loathed by everyone else who played the game. Just ask Steven Jackson or Matt Barnes. They'll tell you, even though they're two of my favorite people ever. The two scenarios above are usually where most people go wrong with not knowing the rules of the game. They either violate the second don't, don't be ignorant, or they try to break the game itself by trying to cheat it in order to win. The first of the two scenarios is unintentional, the second one intentional. Let's dive into the two of them. The first scenario is flawed simply because it will prove to, it will prove to be invaluable if you attempt to and play the game. You cannot hit what you cannot see. If you go in blind expecting to play a game one way and then find out that it's played another, you'll get chewed up and spit out fast, than your head will spin, and people won't be nice about it either. Games are meant to assess competition, and people in games want to win. Should you enter and not know what you're doing, you will quickly find yourself ousted, and not in the fashion that you would find favorable. The second scenario is flawed because you will not be wanted in any other scenario should you choose to play it. If you simply try to wreck the game or spin the game in your favor, no one will invite you to play. The relationships within the confines of the game matter as much as the game itself. This is where the phrase, it's not whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game, gets its bearings from. Being derived from psychologist John Piaget, the logic is simple. It's not whether you win or lose one game, but rather if you are invited to play enough games that you win enough of them to spin whatever situation is in your favor. If you fuck up all your social relationships the other players in the process, you have failed to play the game properly, and no one will allow you back within that circle of trust again. So why does this matter? Why does this even make sense to explain? Because if you take the base of either one of those two scenarios in any context of competition, i.e. a game, you will fail to win the game. And greatness is defined by who can win the most of a certain type of game, whether that's LeBron playing basketball or someone like Mark Zuckerberg in the free market. And these two fraudulent tines of the fork are the first mistake of greatness, or where most people confuse what they believe greatness is for what it actually is in context. So let's start with the first scenario and apply it to greatness. If you don't know how to properly get to the end goal of the game, which is winning the game, your utility to anyone else within the game goes to zero. And thus, being in a competitive space, you'll be quickly booted from the game at the drop of a hat. Ignorance is your worst enemy while trying to become great at something. Like the great Sun Tzu always preached, knowledge is the most powerful weapon you can possess in this landscape. And this is where the mistake of buying into hustle porn comes into play. People like Gary Vee and Grant Cardone, another con artist, will have you think that you have to work hard all the time and not take any breaks and cut your psyche into pieces in order to become one of the elite in society. Be obsessed or be average, in the words of the latter. And the sad part is, they're right. Greatness is so rare that only those who are as obsessed with dominating as many of the series of games as possible will ever have a chance of achieving it. This is what separates people like Mark Zuckerberg from the rest of the wannabes out in Silicon Valley who want to get like Mark Zuckerberg. Mark Zuckerberg wasn't as obsessed with classics. He wanted to take over the world, and was willing to eviscerate anyone who wanted to get there. He's largely succeeded because he's never taken his foot off the gas. He's tarred and feathered anyone that has attempted to get close. But this has also come at a tremendous cost. People are using his primary invention, Facebook to commit horrific atrocities against humanity in places like Myanmar. He's arguably the most hated man in America to a wide demographic of people. He probably will never be truly happy because his ambitions to change the world still have not fallen from their lofty pedestal. His company could potentially, although I would say highly unlikely for the way our ruling class functions, get shattered into pieces and thrown into the ether as separate entities. And most people that listen to Gary Vee or Grant Cardone, or want to be like Mark Zuckerberg, don't understand this. I don't even think I do. To be frank, I don't think a lot of us want to. It takes a very uncommon individual, as we've seen, to go to the places where people like Mark Zuckerberg have to go in order to become as great as they are. We don't want to imagine ourselves being that, or doing that thing, or whatever in order to transcend our existence as mere mortals. And this leaves us with a conundrum. We work really hard, or at least we think we do, at something, most likely serving someone else, thinking that it will eventually get us to what we want. Greatness. But will it really? Well, taking an entry-level, anal- entry-level job as an analyst or salesperson or content creator really get you to become great at that one thing? I would say that the odds are slim. You might become good, you might become really good, if you're lucky, but you almost never become great because most people don't want to make themselves vulnerable enough to go to that place to play the game hard enough where they want to sacrifice everything else in their life in order to become that elevated at that one thing. The rules of the game of greatness are simple. Never let up. Crush everyone in your path. Take no prisoners. Give everything else up until you've gotten to the top. Much like my rep that I work with at my company, this is the path that must be taken. The second scenario is applied to greatness can also be applied to Mark Zuckerberg. Zuck took the idea of social media and became the first person to truly perfect the utopian model of what it could be, or at least of what many people theorized about or thought it could be. But in, but in order to get there, Mark Zuckerberg had to do one thing to the existing models of social media, which back then were things like AOL, Friendster, MySpace, etc., that no one else be do- was willing to do before. He had to kill them. Facebook turned out to be so disruptive to the imperfect, inefficient, outdated model of social media that currently exists that they absolutely obliterated them. It was like Hitler's Blitzkrieg. It came out so fast and so out of nowhere that most people had no proper defense against the power that it possessed. Like the hypothetical dirty game of basketball LeBron played, Mark Zuckerberg and the Facebook crew busted up every single competitor they played against. They were like the bad boy Detroit Pistons. They beat you up every single game, took your lunch money, and kissed your mother on the mouth before they left the arena. Not many people could stomach being that type of bad guy in that type of scenario. The wide majority of people cringe at playing the bad guy, even for a little bit, and for good reason. Let's go back to the normal game example. If you play dirty or find a new way to cheat and hack the system, people become resentful and no longer want to play with you. We now see this with a new Cold War brewing between Apple and Facebook. Tim Cook is sick of Facebook's shit and wants to distance himself from the company. But Zuckerberg and his disruptive greatness won't go down without a fight, that much I can say for certain. The same thing applies with your pursuit of greatness and what you do. Not many people are willing to be quote-unquote that guy that gets really close to the boss, picks their brain, and networks to move higher in their field. Not many of your people are willing to be quote-unquote that guy that tries and works harder than everyone else and has his performance review that look that much better than everyone else's. This is a perfectly reasonable thing to do on its face, but it has a massive social consequence. People won't want to play with you. In fact, they'll start to hate you. They probably won't say it to you out loud, but they'll talk behind your back. They'll call you aggressive. They say that you quote-unquote intimidate people or that you're quote-unquote power-hungry. If your boss gets resentful, and this happens more often than you would think, they might nitpick your work or recommend you for sensitivity training to try to whip you back into shape as what you feel is your rightful place. Their underling. But the truly great ones will never listen. They will keep disrupting, keep pushing the envelope. People will hate them until they start to follow them after they change the paradigm so much that they'll be forced to follow them simply because their model turns out to be better. This is yet another paradox. People don't aspire to greatness not because they don't want to achieve it, but because they're too busy being resentful about the people that have already achieved it. The second point that Yang alluded to, where the rules of the game are inherently flawed, is that another major issue that people who chase after greatness fail to take into account. This scenario results where people play the game fairly and within the boundaries of rules. They play it the way it should be played. How you play the game isn't a concern at all. But what is a concern is the game itself. A question you can ask yourself before playing any game is what the rules of the game are. If they turn out to not make sense, then odds are you probably should not be playing, no matter what it is. You must know the rules, the other players, and the end goal. If none of those are in sync with what your values are and what you truly want out of your investment of your time playing, you should probably not be doing so. Chris Borland is a great example of this. Chris Borland was a middle linebacker that played for the University of Wisconsin before being drafted by the San Francisco 49ers in the third round of the 2014 NFL draft. He was a sensational player both in college and in the NFL. And Borland had a sensational rookie season, notching 107 tackles, picking off two passes, and making the all-rookie team. He had an incredibly bright future, and the 49ers thought that they had great value for him. Which made it that much more of a shock to the 49ers organization when Borland retired two months after the season ended. Around this time in the NFL, evidence was becoming more and more clear about CTE and traumatic brain injuries that were causing long-term effects to the players, some of the more notable and tragic being the late and great junior Seau and Mike Webster. Borland, seeing the research and the effects they were having on players, wanted no part of it. He didn't want to play the game, so he left and played another one. I love professional football, but I don't fault Borland for quitting it one bit. Football's a dangerous game. The data's in, and the facts are well known. The men that play the game know the risks, and they know the potential endpoints. They simply decide to play them anyway. We should not fault them for playing, but we should not roast people like Chris Borland for not playing either. Because in reality, a lot of people play professional football for far too long. The dark side of the NFL rarely shows its face, but when it does, it's bad. Players having to play an extra year to get out of debt or prevent themselves from losing everything when they're well past their prime. People getting leeched on, particularly younger men who grew up in poverty to soak up as much money as they can to take care of everybody. Quote-unquote take care of everybody, mind you. The rules of the game don't work for them. They play the game even though, they're, they, even though the game is rigged. In the quest of greatness in other arenas, people fall into this trap all the time. They spin in circles. They chase the wrong things for the wrong reasons. They get so confused about the arena that they're in that they have no fucking idea what they get themselves into. They just throw themselves in headfirst, knowing full well that they don't support the end goal and do it anyways. This makes no logical sense, and yet it happens all the time. Bad metrics can make or break your relationships with games that you choose to play. With greatness, it can spin you into a vicious cycle that can topple your relationship with whatever you are chasing. And in most cases, it will. The numbers of great people to non-great people prove as much. So, what can you do about it? These are bold claims to make. I fully understand that. I don't even know if I'm fully comprehending what I'm writing or speaking, to be quite honest with you. But I do have a centering piece on all this talk of greatness from someone who I consider to be quite great. I've talked a couple times in here about how much I admire my dad. A lot of people say that, but I think that I'm a special case simply for the fact that I never wanted to be much more than what he was. A good husband, father, employee, and leader. I wanted to emulate him in nearly every fashion. My dad is a mechanical engineer by trade, but has advanced his career where he now runs a global business unit within a manufacturing mechanical engineering firm. He currently works remotely for a company that's based out of the UK. But before he took the job, what he got th- b- b- sorry—but before he took the job, what he—he th- he got what he thought was an opportunity of a lifetime from a firm down in Florida. He had recently become open to options at his old company that he worked for uh, worked for, for the past two decades, and wanted an opportunity to help launch him into the stratosphere. So we took the job and moved our entire family down to Florida in my freshman year of college. My dad, unsurprisingly, did very well. He was immediately well-liked and well-respected, and turned his department of the company around in incredibly quick fashion. But with great power comes great responsibility, as Uncle Ben once said. Not the one who was canceled, by the way. Get cultured. The new role began to take a toll on on my dad in the ways that he didn't expect. He had to travel much more than he did. He was already gone for about a third of the time, And the length didn't change that much, but he was gone for sometimes three weeks to a month at a time. He had to go to very far away places. Europe, India, Korea. He had to work early and stay late. He had to spend the majority of his time in the airport. He never saw anyone and didn't go out that much. He could hardly find time to take time off. His boss, the CEO of the company, treated him and everyone else like dog shit. He was chasing greatness as you should if you want greatness. But he was also killing himself. His health had precipitously worsened. His skin looked yellow, and his eyes were always swollen and tired. His diet, which had declined precipitously due to the corporate luncheons and business dinners, inflamed his muscles and the rest of his body, making him gain weight and look constantly puffy. On top of that, he couldn't find the energy or time to work out. You can't expend much energy when you're constantly running on fumes. His sleep was constantly disrupted. All of the ideas for work and all the time spent on technology and travel were were ravaging his ability to get what sleep he could and this is a person who only sleeps around six hours a night anyways. His relationships also suffered, mostly with my mom. I don't want to share too much out of their privacy, and I don't know much to begin with because I haven't asked, but I think it's a safe assumption to proclaim that when you spend most of your time on something that your your priorities are oriented in that direction. My mom, and all the other people who valued my dad's company and presence, began to think that as well with my dad and his work. It was the classic dichotomy of greatness at work. Great at one thing, but everything else suffering as a consequence. It was a very ugly scenario, and it was hard to watch. I told my dad numerous times to look elsewhere for work, to stop, to put the brakes on. But he couldn't. He had a plan to take care of his family and was going to see it through to the end. But as I told you earlier, my dad is no longer with that company. He's with, an- he's with another one. I was overjoyed when he made that transition, left his old job for his new one, and moved our family back to Ohio. Things immediately began to turn around. He looked like he was jogged back to life. He works out regularly and with high intensity. His joints have even improved significantly. He eats considerably better, which has trimmed him down and made him look better than he has in probably about the last five years. He's much more social, albeit with a much-needed help with my mom, and this is a problem that we both share. But I didn't know this whole side of the, thing that he, this ho- the whole side of the thing that he left. One day, when talking about the decision to leave, my dad told me something that he hadn't before. He was in line to be the CEO of the company. All I had to do was wait for his former boss to ride off in the sunset and the job was his. My mouth nearly fell open. It wasn't Amazon, but to be the CEO of anything is a big deal. I was in disbelief that my dad had the opportunity. But he didn't take it. He had it all, quote-unquote. But he chose to say no. He chose to leave the life that would give him and his family security financially for generations and throw it all down the toilet. He would have had access to a private jet, stock options, a network of some of the most successful people in the industry, probably a couple of spots on television, hero worship. But he turned it all down. And the job he turned it all down for? It's not glamorous. It's his old job before the Florida job, only with a lot more disorganization and chaos that he's not responsible for fixing. It certainly doesn't pay well, or pay as well, rather. He still has to travel. But he took that job, which would be a sledgehammer to the knee of most people's ego, particularly at that point of his career, over the one that would give him everything that people think greatness personified is. I was puzzled and told me he, until he told me his reason. Sam, I know I could be the CEO. And that's good enough for me. In all my life, I don't think I've heard a more powerful statement be uttered by a person who I respect more. An opportunity at greatness and everything it gets you. And he said no. He said no to everything. He told them to keep it. To give it to someone else. Instead, he had the absolute confidence and in internal security to know that he was great himself and to turn down what would tell everyone else that he th- and turn down what would tell everyone else that he was. If there's ever a point I want to get to with myself, it would be that. My dad didn't need, ex- er, need external validation. He knew it within himself what his capabilities were, and he didn't give a single fuck if anyone else knew it or not. It was the single greatest display of serenity that I'd ever seen. My dad didn't shun greatness. He simply decided that something else was more important than greatness. He saw the other side of the equation and didn't think the math added up. And more importantly, he was okay with it. He didn't let it eat away at him or send him into some kind of bizarre catatonic depression. He weighed the pros and cons, made a decision, and stuck with it. And this is the point of this whole article. It's okay not to be great. I promise you, it really is. I've said numerous times you will outright suck at most of the things that are available for you to do in life which is like millions of different things. I stand by that claim with the utmost conviction. I believe it to be one of the most true things that you can force through your skull. Furthermore, the luxury that we can pursue only, that we, that we can pursue only one of those things to become great at makes those odds even more slim. Most of us have a myriad of responsibilities, and we should if we are living life to the proper fashion that we should be. This naturally spreads us thin and forces us to make trade-offs to compensate for the widely, wide complexity that life offers. The chance to become great, therefore, diminishes even further. And yet we continue to beat on, boats against the current, to quote the late, great F. Scott Fitzgerald. We keep reaching out towards the green light at the end of the dock, even though the odds are hopelessly against us. Because here's another upsetting fact for you. We were all not meant to beat the odds. Those odds are meant meant for people few and far between the capacity of mere mortals such as you and I. If we all were meant to become great, then greatness would mean nothing. And that would be a very sad thing indeed. So what are we to do? What are we to do if all the social media experts and self-help gurus and our kind-hearted parents are wrong? I'll give you another unpopular answer. Don't listen to them. Don't be great. Don't try to achieve outward excellence in one thing. I've learned from the example of my dad, from the people I work with, and from the people in our culture whom I've referenced in this post that it's not worth it to do so. Instead, do the exact opposite of what people are doing. Try to aim for average, or slightly above it if you dare, in the things that bring you value within your life. Do not be a maximizer. Don't try to create the quote-unquote optimal life for yourself because it doesn't exist. Don't try to get the hottest girl to date you. Don't try to be the best person at your company. Don't try to be the parent who is always there for your children all the time. Odds are, if you try, you will end up making yourself absolutely fucking miserable in the process. Because greatness has a price, you see. Being great at anything means sacrificing everything else. It also means a hyper-focus on that one area that's so intense that a telescope from NASA pales in comparison to it. To quote Dave Ramsey, it's putting all your eggs in one basket. If you fuck it up, your entire world comes crashing down. And then what are you left with? A shit ton of neglected other things you haven't paid attention that are going to drag you into oblivion. If you're strong enough to bear that burden, I envy you. Because I certainly am not. However, if you're average to above average, if you essentially diversify your life and your investments into it, you have a chance to hit a little bit of the good in a lot of areas. A good part of what I talk about on this blog is improvement of individual capacity in your life. This strategy gives you the roadmap to improve that individual capacity in a lot of areas to make those other areas of your life that much better. If greatness is pursued, you could hit it big. Really big. But that could is about as explosive as a hand grenade. If you throw it and hit your target you win, but if you pull the pin out and hold it too long, you fuck yourself up just as badly. Play with that fire if you wish. Because, ultimately, the true cost of greatness is discovering that it isn't worth pursuing. Greatness is a double-edged sword. It is responsible for most of the good things we enjoy in our life. It also simultaneously responsible for much of the pain that we bear as well. It's all about choosing our hard, and whether we want that hard to define us. For most, that burden is too much to bear. In order to combat this conundrum, we must come to terms with being average people and let it marinate within our psyches. If we are able to properly integrate that fact within our being, we have a chance of not only shunning greatness, but also living a life that is much more meaningful than people that possess greatness live. Because in the end, what good is greatness if it doesn't get us what we all believe we really want? In most cases, it does the exact opposite. We should not judge people for wanting to pursue either, But we almost properly factor in the cost as well. Sometimes, and I would be willing to bet more often than not, they're more than what we fear they would be. But other times, they're just as cheap as a 12-pack of Pop-Tarts. So thank you for listening, everyone. I know this is kind of a complex topic, a deep topic, and I really appreciate you guys sticking around. So have a good weekend, good week. Open your mind, own the day. See you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Stopping, hopping like a rabbit, when I take the Nina Ross you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself, think about the shit and I think it well. How can I mix my grip, and how should I make that nigga straight?